welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. And this weekend, we're talking about games that let us play our way. I mean, pray also rhymes there, but I'm not I'm not trying to do a whole big rhyming thing. We're, we're broadening it out to games that kind of have you doing different builds and that kind of respect player choice in that way that you can do the stealthy route, you can do the combat route, you can do the whatever other type of route. And of course, this is somewhat uh, inspired by the fact that we're both knee deep in prey. I actually finished it last night, 48 hours and five minutes oh in my, my first goodness. playthrough. But that sounds like heaven. Yes. It really was. Oh, I, 48 hours. I took my, I mean, frankly, it's like a 20 hour game, I think. Like if, if you're not super, super fast, I think for people who are good at video games, it's probably like a 15 hour game. For most people, it's probably like a 20 hour game. And for me, it was a 50 hour game. <laughs> but I also wanted to do pretty much everything. I ended up doing, um, like, let's say a solid 80 plus percent of the side quests. I did not do every single one. I kind of got to a point where I was like, no, I, re I should really finish. And if I want to see every last thing, it's fine to load a save. <laughs> but I should really just finish. Uh, and, and that's what I did. So, uh, so Rob, I know you're playing Prey, and I know you also have more thoughts on sort of games that let you do your own builds. So how, well, how are you feeling Prey right now? Yeah, and well, let me just say at the start here. Yeah, the ideas we're going to broaden this conversation out beyond prey. It may not happen. <laughs> like, this might just turn into another prey cast. Prey two, baby. <laughs> um, but so the, I think the the thing that put me in mind of of this this week and made me sort of keen to talk about this with you is, um, you know, just before the show, I was asking you questions about your build uh, to get a sense of maybe what I should do with mine. Yeah. And the cool thing was, I thought we were doing sort of the same thing. We were both being like, um, you know, all human all the time. We weren't using like any of the the alien ability. Yeah, abilities. that is that is how I finished. I finished the game without ever using a, a Typhon uh, ability. Yeah, and I was do I, I was I th I was thinking about sticking to that route sure. of uh, of play, but I've started to feel like just the resourcing doesn't entirely work. Uh, if you're not consuming that psi meter, <laughs> um, because I've been running really, really low on stuff like ammunition. And since I don't have psi abilities, um, I am starting to feel like the game is getting really hard, really fast because I've just burned through, uh, most of the ammo. So let me uh, ask where, where you are and also say like, Hey, if you haven't finished prey, we'll talk about mid game spoiler. Yeah. We're going to, yeah, yeah, we're going to try to avoid Spoilers, I'm not going to spoil the sure. end. Yeah, for 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 sure. So. Or even too much of what happens, but like, so I just uh, I just got to the arboretum, and okay. so in the structure of prey, yeah, this means that like the game is broadly divided between I would say two hubs. The first hub is the Talos One lobby, mm -hmm. and then there's this huge elevator that runs up through the Talos space station, <laughs> and that goes up to the arboretum. Which is the hub for a bunch of your more like um, management and residential mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. spaces on the space station, and so I just got to the, the second hub location, and I consumed a lot of resources getting there, flying through this zero gravity tunnel yeah. that was full of these bullshit enemies. Oh my god! <laughs> just, yeah, like I hate. 
I hate mimes, Danielle. Yes. Not yeah. mimes. Uh, yeah. I'm actually actually a good mime. I can I can get behind a good mime. Sure. But sure. I hate I hate uh, mimes. I just despise <laughs> them. And the the path you take to get to the arboretum level is just jam packed with these goddamn like alien mimes. <laughs> Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of that, actually. It's very, uh, mm. all right, so I will say this. I encountered that as well, and I definitely encountered that in that area, where I started feeling the pressure of being like, should I do all human? Should I, should I keep doing this? I always kind of pushed through, and by the, by the last third of the game, even going all human, you are super fucking powerful. Uh, and like, I had no problems in, in kind of like my last section of the game, destroying anything that kind of got in my way. But I will say, uh, there are some weird choke points in Prey that kind of don't make that much sense. Like, I guess a little bit of narrative sense being very weak at the beginning because you're supposed to be pretty freaked out by these creatures that are pretty fucked up and can do crazy things. But... Yeah, there there are some weird choke points, and I I was worried, especially when I first got to the Arboretum. The, the Arboretum at, at the beginning is, like, full of really powerful enemies. Like, really, especially powerful to sort of where you are at that level kind of enemies, and a lot of sort of hidden stuff, and there's a lot of stuff in there that's really, really good. And it, But it's, like, literally behind door number one, two, and three off the Arboretum. Like, this literally happened yeah, to me. I have yeah. opened multiple doors off the Arboretum to, like, oh, I wonder what's in this zone. And immediately gotten just, like, mugged by, like, a <laughs> giant-ass creature I have never seen before. Oh, yeah. Or that I saw once before and, like... Managed to beat after consuming most of my like ammunition and grenades. Right. Like that's kind of where I'm at in this game. Is like literally every door I open, I'm like, oh, that's awful. <laughs> and then I have to like run back to the arboretum, and I'm like, okay, I have no idea where to go next. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a little. I would say this. I would say focus on some side quests that sound good to you potentially and get all the stuff eat up all the goodies this is definitely a game where you want every piece of fucking garbage because of course you can recycle it into something good but also you want to defeat all the enemies because they lay a lot of good garbage too <laughs> yeah got it um, and we're all about the garbage all uh, about this, the garbage pod yeah. but the thing that i did that, that i am starting to really dig though is that as my resources have gotten tighter uh, and one reason for that is I have poured a ton of uh, neuromods, which are the you know the, the yeah. widgets that give you your abilities. I have poured those in unlocking uh, like hacking skills yes. and and stuff like that. So now I can literally like like uh, hack the planet, as it were. Yeah. Um. I I maxed out my hack ability, and so I just can kind of go anywhere and do anything. Provided it doesn't fight. <laughs> like, right. if I do anything, I mean, I can, like, I can play a hacking minigame uh, with the best of them. But <laughs> the cool thing is, like, as I started running these huge limitations with, like, how tough my character was and how low ammunition is, I just embraced the fact that I can sort of shape the battlefield, mm -hmm, as it were, mm -hmm. and uh, I upped my repair abilities. And so now, like, I am leaning really heavily on, like, preparing uh, turret areas. Excellent. 
and then like luring Typhons into kill zones. Like so, you know, there there are these uh, you know phantoms in the Arboretum that were pretty tough, and I wasn't really gonna do well in a straight up like shootout with them, uh, but. With my four turret friends Hell arranged yeah. in a convenient interlocking crossfire, <laughs> um, like those things just imploded. Like it was, it was great. And so is this like it totally changed how I'm playing this game because then I started hacking all the turrets, thinking that the next step for me is going to be uh, taking alien abilities. So I'm assuming that if I've hacked the turrets, they're not going to ever read me as hostile, no matter what kind of alien shit I've got in my bloodstream. <laughs> yeah, I think as long as you hack them, you're good. I, Like I said, I never took an alien ability, so my cool target friends were always my friends. But uh, th- that's sort of how I played the first half of the game. I, I sort of used turrets. So I like to uh, to tell you about my build, to, to talk about the, the whole build issue, I, I maxed out, by the end of the game, I had the 100% of all the engineer abilities, most of the scientist abilities and probably about half of the soldier abilities. Uh, so I, I went hard on neuromods as well and also on like chipset uh, buffs and things like mm-hmm. that. So I was like a really tough engineer with a whole lot of science. <laughs> That's most of of, of uh, where I put my, my time and my abilities. And I still had neuromods left over. Like I, and I finished the game with like five neuromods just hanging out because I was like, yeah, made a lot of those. Uh, it... It uh, I did a lot of hacking. I did a lot of throwing things, and I did a whole lot of of uh, cheesing things a little bit so that I could fight enemies on my terms and not their terms, which was a lot of fun. There are enemies that even if you've hacked the turrets, can use them against you. So I stopped using my turret friends about halfway through, but they're very viable for that first half. So don't don't fret. Repair is a very very good ability to have. Um. I like that the combat in this game always kind of kept me on my toes like that. Like, I, I would have a dominant strategy. I would eat shit. I, like, the whole first five hours, I just ate shit. And then I started getting, like, okay, I finally have a shotgun. I can blow things up and uh, get the Typhons that way. Like, they'll be in fire, and I can blow things up. Okay, that's cool. And then they kind of got a little more powerful, and they got a little more elemental, and so I had to change things up with that. There's a weapon called a Q-beam that you should definitely get as soon as you can because it's real helpful with some of the enemies that uh that change uh yeah, change the rules so, on you. <laughs> there are so many enemies where I've like I've scanned them and it's like weaknesses. Uh really only the Q-beam. And I'm like, yep. "Boy, I wish I had a Q-beam." Yep. Uh, I'm sure one of those is around here somewhere, but I, I don't not think in it. Prey I I didn't use any kind of guide whatsoever, but I don't think it would impact your enjoyment too much if you if you checked out a few little things like that, you know, I, to be honest, I, I appreciate. Like, I, I am glad for that dispensation, like that that indulgence. But yeah. at the same time, like, here's the weird thing: I'm kind of happy in my misery, yeah. and part of that is because, like, it's really satisfying trying to figure out like how to make lemonade out of the lemons that prey occasionally throws at yes. you, and. I find it, I think this is kind of maybe where this game starts to get an edge over my beloved Dishonored 2 a little bit in that Dishonored 2, I think there were a lot of different ways to use those abilities, but because you could always sort of swap those abilities at will, um, 
it never felt like you were ever locked in. You know what I mean? You, you were never, like Dishonored never really did that, like like made that move of saying. Yeah. You made your bed. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You could always like, okay, you know what? I'm just gonna like do the teleport stealth thing here. Yep. Okay, this this is getting too hard. I can now. I'm just gonna be um, like, it's it's time to have a murder frenzy. Like yep. this will be my little <laughs> my just one little murder frenzy in a level shouldn't raise the chaos uh, too too high. Pray it's it's very cool. We're like I am wandering around the arboretum. And this is going to sound excruciating to people. Like I am moving turrets from one like combat area to the next. <laughs> totally. Like preparing for my next fight. It's going to sound infuriating, but I am so happy. I am so happy to be uh, this deeply engaged with the environments and um, my own character abilities. Yeah. Yeah. I, I felt that way very much as well. And like to also compare it to Dishonored 2, I like it a lot better actually i i have i didn't finish dishonored 2 and i and i loved it like let's be clear i fucking loved dishonored 2 it made me want to 100% things i just because of my life and because of everything in the world i i just had to stop playing it at some point and i'm i do need to go back and finish it but i i didn't actually finish it pray i put fucking 48 hours into it and i finished it goddamn it and like i i think uh, that Dishonored 2 probably has better level design. It has better um, just sort of overall level design. And, like, it, it's a hard thing to quantify, uh, but it, it did feel a little bit tighter designed in, in a lot of ways, for sure. Like, there were very clear paths through levels. Whereas in Prey, there's a lot of choices you can make, and you're going to have to just make your choice and be happy with it. And and I love that, as as you're saying. But Prey also has combat that is delicious in this way in the in this like yeah you think you know what's going on and then it's gonna slap you a little bit now yes by the very end you are really powerful if you if you kind of knew what you were doing even if you didn't go with any alien powers or, or anything like that you pretty much can destroy rooms of stuff like you do get some really good toys and pray and if you know what you're doing you have a lot of fun with them whereas in dishonored i always felt like you were kind of discouraged from engaging in in hand to hand combat, like like obvious yeah. combat, like definitely you could do a lot of stealth kills or stealth knockouts or whatever. I tried to play that actually uh, pretty non lethal, um, but yeah, you you could you could totally like do bad things to people, but like kind of having a room of chaos and bullets was not a good thing for you. But in prey, it sh- it so can be. <laughs> well, <laughs> and know? I'm just not gonna feel bad killing this oily writhing like <laughs> electrified mass that is of... really just wants you to die in every possible way <laughs> yeah exactly like in that that's another difference is that like dishonored uh feels because the world is built so effectively yeah that like the murder frenzies do feel a little more murderous and less like empowering like and it's it's a weird thing, right? Yeah. Because I don't have this feeling in a lot of uh, shooters. Like I'm just going to be happy mowing dudes down, uh, in, in in like, you know, even in a in a game with some problematic uh, imagery like Max Payne Three, right? Yes. Where like yeah. literally you are just like blazing, uh, you you are carving a bloody swath <laughs> uh, <laughs> through the favelas of of, of Brazil, uh, but at the same time, like, look. In the world of that game, everything is out to murder you. 
Like you turn you you turn a corner, people are going to start shooting at you in a second. There's no other option. Like that's how that world works. In Dishonored, because it feels like kind of a convincing world, yeah, and because you don't have to murder everyone, and because you have a heart that tells it. you some of these people are good people, <sighs> that literally exactly. says like, oh, you know, thanks, mom. He always <laughs> whatever it was. There's always the one that's like, oh, he always tried to help the cook or whatever the fucking thing is. Like, there's several of those that were like, yeah, he always makes sure to have time for his children on Sundays or like, I I'm not yeah. remembering I'm not the stab exact that ones, guy. but. It's like yeah. I don't want to kill that guy. He goes home to his kid and he's nice. Like he's not he's not Satan. Like it's <laughs> Right. Whereas know. like here there's a giant like mind controlling like caco demon basically floating around and I'm like fuck that thing. Yeah. Like exactly. you know, like I, let me at that thing. I want to murder it. Exactly. And you do have you're going to have a lot of uh the way prey handles moral choices and I won't spoil anything but is actually good and is actually kind of cool. I oh, I will just say I always wanted to help people in this game if, when they were around. And it's not like it, it doesn't happen almost at all in the first half. Like the second half is much more weighted with, oh, there, there's some survivors here or there's some things you can do. You know, there are some actions you can take or not take. Uh, there's a lot of optional stuff that you are able to do if you want. And I always wanted to do those things for sure uh and never felt bad about killing the alien so like it feels like there's a very like yeah there's a good path here and none of it is weighted down in sort of like dialogue choices basically it's it's a completely actions speak louder than words kind of moral continuum which i super appreciated so you know sort of turning to other games here yeah why does a game like Prey work? Because a lot of games, if they if they end up sort of locking you into your choices, can feel kind of infuriating. I, I think you, it can be really frustrating. Yeah. And I'm trying to figure out like why this is satisfying in Prey, and yet I am sure there are games where this is completely blown up in in my face. Yeah, I, I'm sort of thinking of like Dark Souls. I uh, I played. Bloodborne and all of Dark Souls 3 or most of Dark Souls 3 rather uh, and they definitely let you change your build through a weird set of circumstances uh, in 3 at least and I think that's common for that series I think you are able to sort of redistribute your points in that sort of game but I could see how a game like Dark Souls would be fucking miserable if you if you didn't kind of pick the right thing and they locked you into it like I think because Prey really allows you to experiment with different things and really, really does sort of respect your choices in that, like, uh, yeah, there's going to be a viable way of, of solving this problem however you spec yourself out, basically. Like, the only exception I can think of is is stealth because the stealth mechanics here, I think, are maybe one of the weaker parts of the game. Like, it just doesn't feel very committed to stealth it feels a little bit like hey it's an option it's not really the best option <laughs> it, it definitely feels like when when the yeah. stealth primarily leads up to uh surprise attack that's yeah that's damage all it bonuses is, really that basically tells you like where the stealth like you know this is the viability of stealth yeah. it sets you up for the fight you have to have but nah you're gonna have to kill these you're things. gonna have to fight yeah exactly and like there's not like a great um there's little meters for enemies, whether they're aware of you or not. And like, that'll pretty much tell you what you need to know. But it's not like in Dishonored where you really know 
you know, no. you can really watch the patterns of the enemies without ever really being in trouble. Like you can you can definitely be in a dark corner for an hour and a half in something like Dishonored and really know what you're doing. You can't exactly do that in Prey. It's not that robust, basically. The, the meters don't even feel as accurate uh, in Prey. Yeah. Like, it, like, basically, it feels like once you're spotted, you're going to fight. Like, there, there's yeah. not sort of those grades of alertness. I'm sure there are, but, like, it just doesn't sort of feel that way yeah. as much. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think another... Prey walks this this balance between sort of forcing you to deal with your characters you've constructed it and giving you the freedom to go like because you can always go back to old spaces, old zones, yeah. you can sort of like <laughs> you can make you can make lateral moves yes. uh if if things get really tough. And I think this is in in a lot of like RPGs or uh, tactics games, what you'll run into so like XCOM two, uh, you know, I I think had had a real problem with this. If you didn't stay on the on the power curve mm-hmm. that that game clearly had in mind, um, you were utterly toast, yeah. and that basically meant like. A, you needed to find your squad configurations that that you were good at, uh, and. Because the consequences for failure were so disastrous, it didn't encourage a lot of experimentation. Like once you had your sort of, you know, your your A team players, you didn't really feel empowered to go and try a radically different approach to, uh, you know, executing these missions. Yeah. And that also meant that later, like you, you just got more and more dependent on, on your go to characters, your your go to abilities. And if those were taken away from you, you know, via, you know, attrition in combat and stuff like that, that game stopped being fun for me real fast because it didn't feel like, it didn't feel like there was any lemonade to be made uh, in that situation. It just felt like, okay, uh, you're poisoned now and you're going to die slowly. Congratulations. (laughs) Like, you can can run the next five missions. Go for it. Feel free. (laughs) You're toast. It's done. You need to try again. Yeah. And uh, that's, and I think a lot of games end up in that place. Like, uh, if you don't commit to giving players, if you don't commit to thinking about different ways players can approach your 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 possibility space, your problem space, as it were, uh, then a lot of those lines of play you're going to sketch out will just end up being in that classic min max con- conundrum, right? Yeah. Where if, if you didn't commit to it all the way. Um, you're you're screwed. Yeah, totally agree. And there's something I, I really like what you said about sort of lateral movement uh, that you can use in Prey. It also feels like this is one of the first games where I felt truly encouraged to not just go down one uh, tech tree. Like I really felt encouraged to do a lot of engineering and a lot of science and like plenty of the combat stuff. Like I didn't feel like going kind of i like to mix and match quite a bit just in general uh in abilities and in life i guess rpgs hate when you do that they do it's like no no you gotta go one way or the other bub and if you do anything in the middle you're just like a milk toast piece of shit and it's like no and pray it's good to have a diverse skill (laughs) set they want you to be a renaissance morgan (laughs) basically 
<laughs> you know, oh my God. there's a, awesome. there's an entire like uh, Ricardian capitalist critique of like RPG mechanics, right? Where it's like, yes. like D and D was like, oh, well, you could multi-class. But then, what a piece of shit burden you're going to be on your party. <laughs> oh, I want to be, I want to be a ranger cleric. Fuck you. Pick one. <laughs> like, oh, fine. You want to be both? Well, have your experience. See how you like it. Be shitty like, at two things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know, I don't know if D&D uh, still works that way, but I always felt like, in general, RPGs really aggressively push you to specialize. Like, yes. you know, even Skyrim... And games of its ilk, where it's like, oh, whatever you do is what you'll get good at. What that translates to is pick your favorite weapon and just stick to it. Just yeah. stick to it. Like, just ride that th- <laughs> ride that thing to the end of the game. Don't be like, oh, I like, I like a little sword action. I like a little axe action. Yeah. Boy, crossbows. Are, like, no, no, you got to pick one. Yeah, and it like, God, I feel like I'm having an epiphany right now because it's like, that that's how I like living my life. I like living my life by doing very different things that require very different skill sets. So like when a game lets me do that, it makes me really happy. And I guess to be fair, uh, at least the Mass Effect games let you do at least a little of that. There were def- like I always played a Sentinel class, which is pretty much biotics and engineering. I think basically it's like whatever magic powers and engineering, however they they kind of put it. Uh, and there were definitely other classes that, like, what was the Vanguard is, like, basically soldier and engineering. Like, there's, they did at least let you kind of mix a little bit. And I always appreciated that, which is maybe why I liked the Mass Effect games so much more than any other, uh, like, Western RPGs. I think, honestly, the Mass Effect games are the only, like, I never really played much Dragon Age, and maybe they do that in Dragon Age as well, but, like, Man, this is this is the key. This is the key to my heart. Let me do a whole bunch of different shit. <laughs> like it's it makes yeah. me happy to have different skill sets and different powers and like maybe I feel like approaching one situation very differently than other situations and maybe that's what makes prey so fucking awesome. Sometimes what? I wanted to to hack, sometimes I wanted to fight, sometimes I wanted to to throw heavy objects and get in through a weird little thing. Sometimes I wanted to make glue to the sky and like do platforming. <laughs> yeah. Uh no, it's I think something else that Prey does, um you guys Prey is so good. Oh, like it's, we're not like it's goaty. Like it's, it's fucking so goatee. good. <laughs> uh but I think something else it does is it doesn't show you its whole hand yeah. uh, early, but it does give you a good sense pretty quickly of like, okay, this is how the world is constructed. Like, yeah. here are the kind of security challenges you're going to find. Here are the kind of things that your engineering ability can interact with. Here are the kind of enemies you're going to encounter and the problems you're going you're gonna to have with them. And here's your tool set, and you can easily see how each of those like uh, like parts of the ability tree are going to interact with the experience of the game. And I think a lot of RPGs you kind of like groping your way forward in the dark where you're like, I'm making these choices. In a lot of cases, they're irrevocable, but I fundamentally don't know what this game is going to look like in five hours. Yeah. Like, I mean, if I hadn't, so going to like a classic RPG example, right? When I played Fallout, uh, Fallout 1, basically I like, I just asked my girlfriend like everything about the game because the thing is the game starts and it's like oh you kill some rowdies in the town you kill some rad scorpions uh occasionally rats you know but (laughs) you don't realize that there's a pivot coming where like there's going to be 
super mutants, like and, yeah. and a fair bit of them. And so how are you going to handle that? Um, and that's cool to have those surprises, but it's really frustrating when a game, every time it reveals some new complication to an extent makes you feel like, Oh fuck, I really wish I'd known something like this was possible, uh, for me to encounter when I was making these choices and I just didn't. And I don't feel like prey ever pulls that with me. Uh, where in a lot of like RPGs, tactics games, I feel that way constantly. Yeah, I, I totally, totally agree. It's, and it is, it does that in ways that are incredibly smart to the narrative as well. And like, I, I we'll talk about this again when you beat the game, but, but I yeah. really like how cohesive the whole thing feels in, in a lot of ways, including what you're talking about in terms of the gameplay loops. Like you're, there are definitely surprises, but you feel prepared as a player for how to deal with them because of the way it sets you up, because of the way the game kind of begins, because of the way uh, things are structured in the beginning. It really does kind of set you up for success instead of failure, I think. And success with any variety of the powers that you choose, any variety of builds that you choose. Right, and sort of success as you define it. Yes. You know, like, I want I want my character to feel this way. And you can, you can sort of do that. Yeah. Um, and I think this does apply to, like, you know, when I think about when I was really into Civilization games, like, I never played a Civilization as much as I played, played Civ 2. Sure. Uh, Civ 4 came close, but Civ 2 is probably the most I, I played one. Uh, when I went back and played Alpha Centauri recently, again, these are games that don't feel like... Um, like you're, you're locked into modern, one path? Or, yeah, yeah, like your yeah. your more modern civs, the Civ V uh, approach was very much like you need to figure out how to use your competitive advantage uh, via your uh, Civ special you know special traits and your leader bonuses. And if you don't learn how to do that effectively, you're not going to be able to walk the tightrope to the one or two victory conditions that your faction <laughs> is really supposed to be good at. Yeah. And that makes for an engaging like intellectual challenge but it also feels like you're not empowered to just sort of react and reconsider your your previous choices the entire game is predicated on you having an understanding of how the whole piece the whole thing fits together um and you know hitting your blocking and that's that's not what i want for most of my games i i'm like you i want that i want to be able to like see a different possibility and get curious about it, go explore it all in the same playthrough without getting totally hammered for that decision. Yeah. God, yeah. Huh. I, like, as we're sitting here and we're talking about other games and talking about Prey, I am, like, so tempted to start up another 50-hour fucking playthrough of this game going alien only and seeing how different it is just to see what those other powers are what those other trees are and so i can mix and match from that like side of the pool basically do it (laughs) like i like prey is gonna go on my infinite loop of arcane games like i like i i think i'm just going to finish prey and then i'm gonna go back to dishonored one and it's just gonna be glorious Oh God! This is this is my life now, Daniel. That sounds so good. That sounds like a really good life, actually. And I clearly need to go and finish Dishonored Two. Like, I I definitely need to. I don't even remember why. There was no like. There was nothing about the game that made me stop. I think it was just my life happened, and and I and I stopped. And 
I mean, but it, it there doesn't... was an election around that time. Too. Yeah, there sure was. You <laughs> like, know, the world a discontinuity ended. In, <laughs> in in a lot of things. Yeah, for sure, the world did end uh, <laughs> a little yeah. bit. You know, oh, though man. I think there's a conversation for another day is at the time I was playing it, I thought I loved Dishonored too, and I still like I do. I I, I mm, no, I'm probably being hyperbolic. I really, really like Dishonored two. Yeah, I loved Dishonored one. And I'm still working through my feeling of why Dishonored 2 feels like a better game in many respects. And yet, there is there is just something that is that is not that is missing from that experience. And I can't figure out if that's inside me or it's uh, something about what Dishonored 2 is doing differently. So you gotta yeah. basically you have to finish Dishonored 2. Yes, I do. And then we need to have a conversation <laughs> about like why. A good sequel can sometimes feel like less than the raw version of <laughs> of its of its predecessor. Yeah, I mean, I that's super fair. I I definitely like Dishonored two more than one, uh, but I I can also definitely see that, and also see that like you know sometimes something is giving you kind of more of the same but more polished, but because you you kind of knew what to expect, it's not quite the revelation that the first thing was like, holy shit, yeah. this is amazing. Uh, and then it's like, oh, ho I know this is going to be amazing. So what else is it going to do to wow me? I did, that's, there's always that yeah. factor. So if there's a prey to, and you know, if I'm being honest, there probably won't be, but. <laughs> the way things are going. Oh, <laughs> please buy this game. No, it's... no, I can't, I can't say that. I'm, I'm a fucking journalist. I can't tell people to buy a thing, but I, I, I can tell you. Well, we... This is like <laughs> you're also a reviewer. Yeah, I can. I exactly. I can also tell you like this is. I think this is like one of the best games in the last fucking decade. And like I say this, having played Zelda: Breath of the Wild recently, that I also think is one of the best games in a fucking decade. And it is in fucking sane to me that these games came out like a month and a half apart no what, and it's if, like, what if 2017 what? the tragedy of 2017 is just like all the good games got in each other's way Re oh god and no. that's like that's why things have started like like sales are getting spottier it's just because <sighs> like literally there is it's not that like it's not that shit is get is is like having these breakout years and like right. people are just <laughs> buying the bad games yeah it really just does seem like um, there's this embarrassment of riches oh. and good franchises are sort of getting caught in this traffic jam of um, really, really great games. Um, but no, I, I do think, you know, I understand the hesitation for like when you're, when you're, you know, that advocacy conversation yeah. Uh, yeah. that we had earlier this year. But I think for me, there's more this like existential panic I'm feeling about the entire thing. Like Austin and I were talking a little bit about this on the other podcast, uh, yeah. Waypoint Radio. Oh, that I've heard <laughs> of that. <laughs> uh, where we were we were talking a little bit about Destiny, but I was also talking about um, you know the fact that Ubisoft is making the Crew too, and that apparently right. the Crew has like remained really profitable for them. <laughs> Which you know, great. I'm I'm glad people. I'm I'm glad to hear people are getting work. I am glad, uh, you know, to, to hear th hear of things being a success. And I do think, uh, you know, transitioning away from the the hit driven model, as uh, you know, Ubisoft put it, is is probably the, the is a better move for the industry as a whole. Yeah. But at the same time, 
I don't want to be a games journalist writing about an industry where it's all the crew. Uh, you know, where, where yeah. your choice is basically you can play your really generic open world like amusement park games, and then you can play your really personal, much smaller and like more straightforward, more constrained uh, indie games. Yeah. In, you know, in a lot of ways, I like. Danielle, I just, I love my, I love my big, expansive pretties. Oh, I love immersive sims. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love immersive sims. I actually had this, this whole uh, Twitter brainstorming the other day where I, I sort of went out and asked devs, like, is it, is it possible to make like a fairly expansive immersive sim on a, on a budget? Like if, if you cut out basically most of the expensive animation and facial animation and, and stuff like that, is it even possible to make like system? Can you do stealth and hacking and combat and systems that will interact with each other? Even if it looks a little cheaper, like, is that even, I'm basically, I'm basically hunkering down in my little bunker saying like, I, I sure hope it's triple uh, A indies can at least continue this. <laughs> this you're basically genre. hoping like that, like in five years, the the, the full ride company yeah. can like make a decent one of these. Exactly, will, like, even yeah. if it doesn't look nearly as polished, which I, I'm I'm fine with. I I sure love the pretties, as you're saying. Like I I sure want my special pretties, but even if it's even if it's a little ugly, <laughs> or not even ugly, but like even if it's a much simpler. Looking, I'm fine as long as I'm I'm having the same kind of fun and having those kinds of choices. I just I just don't want this this genre, which is my favorite triple A genre, if if <laughs> I could call it that. Like well, I, I don't want it to die, Rob. I look, want it to live. It is a phoenix. I know. Um because oh. it did die. Like yeah. remember before Dis- before Deus Ex Human Revolution. Yes. This genre appeared to be totally hosed. Oh, like I know. it was a it was a desert as far as uh you know these types of games yeah. were concerned. That appear that that appears to have let up and now there's like this mini deluge of, of games like this. Um the best I suspect, games. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I suspect we're in for another dry spell. Mm. Uh, but I do think this might just be the nature of the beast is that it will like continue to sort of appear and recede uh, over time. I do think the next time, like if these trends hold uh, <laughs> where these things are not selling brilliantly for the likes of IDOS and, yeah. uh, and, and Bethesda. That's right. Possibly. Because of, of, of Hitman as well. Oh my God. I'm going to go cry. I need well, to and, go and cry. Deus Ex. And Deus Ex. Uh, oh my God. Yes. Um, oh. mm. But, yeah, I, so I think we, you know, I, I think that's that's going to be a concern. It may not operate at at this level of, of publisher, but I don't know. I do have hope that, uh, you know, in five years it will be with smaller publishers uh, or it will be with big indies. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I just remember we have seen the lean times. We absolutely yes. have. Um, you know, the, there's a reason people are playing like, Thief and System Shock 2 repeatedly for like a decade. Yeah. Um, and that might happen again, but my hope is the genre uh, will stick around this time. Yeah. I, I, on that hopeful note, uh, I, I guess we should go into our mailbag. Maybe only read a, two of these letters. Yeah, uh, given we'll do a quick mailbag because we got real into our... Uh, we got immersed, Rob, in our immersive yeah. sim talk. <laughs> 
Uh, awesome. So our first letter comes from Devin uh, from Florida. Devin writes, hey, R&D. I've noticed I haven't really been able to stop thinking about Playdead's Inside since I played it almost a year ago. Inside's version of a dystopian society expertly approached the line between subtlety and corniness, but never once crossed it. In doing so, it strongly evoked that living in such a time and place uh, might be like. It was at once cartoony and eerily realistic, and I find this to be even more the case in the wake of Donald Trump's election. Back when I first played it, the UK had just voted to leave the EU as part of a referendum a couple of weeks before, with pro-Brexiters often being motivated by strong anti-immigration stances. I suppose this must have been swirling through my mind when I finished the game, but now that the horror has truly hit home with a complete man-child in charge of the country I live in, I definitely pick up what Inside was putting down even harder. So my question is this, are there any games when you first played them you felt a certain way about the game, but then a significant event outside the game, whether it be personal, uh, familial, political, etc., caused you to reconsider your feelings on it uh, after having already played it? Thanks, Devin from Florida. <sighs> so, I think yeah. one thing that, this isn't directly an answer to the question, but there is a concern I'm having that everything is becoming somehow about Trump. <laughs> and I understand where that's coming from, and I know I'm sort of guilty of it as well. But I'm just not, it feels like this toxic vapor um, sort of seeping in through the <laughs> through every seam yeah. uh, of your of your lived experience, and so I, I mean I totally get where this is coming from. I get the, I get the email. I feel this way. That, you know, I I feel the same way a lot of times. Like I'm reading. I'm finally finishing up um, Dreadnought uh, by by Robert Massey. Oh yeah. Uh, and I'm in the middle of a really great book. Um, you know about the the Austro Hungarian Empire. And I keep reading about these shitty politicians and being like, oh, this is like Trump. Oh, this is just, wow, the parallels are crazy. And there aren't parallels. You know, there, there's, there's loose parallels, but it, it, that's, they are not parallel experiences. But the problem is that every new experience that I'm having, every new thing I'm learning is being shot through this like shitty prism right. of our current political moment. And I feel like that's making the world feel smaller in a way it shouldn't. Yeah. And this, I mean, as a relatively young person, this definitely also happened around 9-11 when no, definitely not taking anything away from the impact of that event on our culture, as I wouldn't take away the impact of, of voting in a, a piece of shit <laughs> away from our culture either. Uh, but there were definitely things where it, it almost got a little extreme in terms of like blaming like literally everything in the world on on 9-11 instead of kind of seeing uh, the event in a larger context like Donald Trump being elected is also the result of a whole hell of a lot of things in our culture and a whole hell of a lot of really <laughs> the confluence of a lot of bad things the confluence of a lot of racist uh, sentiment and of economic strife and so on and so on and so forth. There, there's a lot of reasons why it happened as there are a lot of reasons why something like a 9-11 would happen, right? And and I do think we have a tendency to kind of simplify things in our brains just so we can go on about our, our fucking lives, right? Like we, we do simplify things and put things into a narrative because that's how our brains work and that's how we're able to attempt to make sense of the world and keep living. Uh, but 
of course, nothing is ever as simple as one event, right? Yeah. Um, and and <laughs> but I do I do uh, appreciate uh, what Devin is saying here for sure. Uh, and I and I am trying to think of you know a game that like really kind of I, I keep kind of going back to weirdly to games that just happened at a time in my life when something was really wrong or something was rough and like playing it gave me some kind of feeling. And then, and then kind of looking back on that, I, I look back and I see the game, but I also mostly see what was going on for me at the time. And I, and it's weird, but like perfect dark, the original perfect dark playing that as I was going through a breakup and I hadn't slept, I, I didn't, there was a time when I was like 16 where I didn't really sleep for more than a very short amount of time for two weeks. And I was like hallucinating and I played perfect dark during that time. And it's just a weird hallucinatory game <laughs> kind of in general. Like there's a lot of trippy shit that happens at the end of that game. There's a lot of alien stuff and weirdness. And I can't think about that game without thinking about the way I felt at the time, like feeling so disconnected and, and weird and, and upset, uh, and like that game will never be free of those feelings, if that makes sense. Like it's always going to be part of that time in my life, no matter what I do, I think. Yeah, I am. Um, on that on that personal level, there's a lot of games that like context has changed uh, for me. Uh, you know, there's you know, there's games that I played a ton of with people I was close to that I'm not close with anymore. Those games now mean something different to me. Yeah, uh, they don't. They don't occupy the same role. There's. I don't enjoy them as much. There's. There's sort of a bittersweetness uh, to to them that you know. I'm. I'm not wild about being present in that experience. I also think though, like, you know, you brought up nine eleven, and I think something I've been reflecting on a lot lately is just all the darkest visions of the future of the games of my youth uh, in the, the, the games of my youth envisioned are sort of coming to pass. Right. And like the first time this really happened was, uh, you know, Deus Ex seemed like this laughable, like it was literally meant to almost be a parody. Like it was good, yeah. but it was also, but it was also meant to be like, what if all the conspiracies were true? That'd be crazy. Right. <laughs> and what the game is about is like, you know, the security state, uh, an endless war on terror, um, class warfare becoming almost weaponized uh, to the point where we have like concerted efforts to destroy the poor through like poverty and disease. Uh, yeah. And, you know, from inside the, the womb of the late 90s uh, or the turn of the millennium, all of this stuff seemed like, oh, nobody, like the world couldn't possibly be. It was so radical. Like, those notions yeah. were so radical, yeah. And it and it was almost laughable, right? It was almost a mark against the game, where like Deus Ex had some smart things going on in it, but it bought into so much bullshit uh, <laughs> that it was like, oh, like great game, but if only it had been a little more like rooted in the real world. <laughs> and then I go back and play it, and like people always talk about, you know, for instance, uh, you know, the, the twin towers didn't appear on the New York skybox right. uh, in 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 Deus Ex, which is this weird. Uh, you know, they, they just forgot to add it, but it becomes this weird, like, uh, premonition that you get in, in Deus Ex that, and, uh, and the, you know, the catalyzing event for the change of, of the U.S. in a lot of cases in Deus Ex is a massive terrorist attack in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, just, it's weird. You, like, you know, I went back and I, and, I, and I played at least the first few hours of it uh, several years ago. 
and it didn't feel haha funny anymore. It, it, it's still amped up to 11, right? Yeah. But now the paranoia feels real uh, in a way that at the time it didn't. And so that's, you know, that that's a place where it clearly changed. And I think this is one of my frustrations with, um, you know, when Human Revolution came out, I think it had, like, in a weird way, it had lost some of its edge. Yeah, it didn't go as far, like, from reality. Yeah. Like, because of the nature of reality in, what what year did that come out? 2009? 2010? Yeah, maybe like that, somewhere yeah. around there. Like, we were already going down a dark fucking path. <laughs> Especially well, with the security state stuff. So it's like, it almost didn't go very far at all with the political aspect of it. Yeah, and like... You know, so um, what's it was named? David Seraph. Yes, uh, the, the head of the technocrat guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and he's just in the end, sort of revealed to be kind of an empty shirt, uh, which I do kind of appreciate. But it just, you know, it's this is sort of an an issue that Austin brought up a couple weeks ago about the characters in Prey, sort of a lack of um, of memorability, a lack of grandeur to them, and I think, I think what bugged me in Human Revolution is that ultimately his verdict on David Seraph, this uh, you know, this this guy who's just sort of charging head, reimagining how the world could work, is that he's mostly harmless. You know, he's <laughs> yeah. a stool pigeon, he's kind of dumb, but uh he, you know, he's not really an agent uh for you know for for the for the disastrous direction the world is heading in. And I think it it just ended up sitting poorly with me that it was this cyberpunk game that didn't really seem to be able to indict anyone for yeah. the things you were observing. Um, yeah, so that was that's that's a game that uh, that definitely has changed. Uh, I talk about it all the time, Alpha Centauri. Yeah, uh, you know, again, it seemed a lot more far fetched when it came out. Now, uh, you know, the things that it is, you know, sort of prophesying about the. Uh, breakup of civilization as as you and I have known it in our lives uh, seem again in, you know in ninety eight when this game comes out it seems far fetched and uh, you know it's it's sort of a grim dark sci fi but it's it's obviously a far remote uh, unreachable future this game is talking about and now you go back and you play it and basically. You know, the backstory of the game is, oh, yeah, like climate disaster and the breakup of political liberalism uh, basically meant that Earth was uninhabitable and humanity was fucked. So we had to leave. And now I'm like, oh, (laughs) well, that's that's a lot less. That's a lot less whimsical than it was in 98. Yeah. Uh, yeah. (laughs) So Um, there's a lot of games that change like that for me. It's not a game, but God, what is that? that comic transmetropolitan um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yes i remember reading that uh somewhat recently actually within the last few years and uh it, it's such a project uh, a product of the 90s you know looking into a far future with all these corrupt politicians and all this bad shit and it's spider jerusalem is is a truth teller journalist who's gonna tell the truth man make you shit your pants if you're if you're not telling the truth it it's like God, it's it's supposedly, you know, imagining a very stupid and very dark future, but, like, the very stupid and very dark future is so much less dark and less stupid than 2017 is, that it's it's 
a little bit hilarious. Like going back now and reading it, it's like, oh, oh, this is this is what you thought a problem was? A politician who's just kind of a jackass and a liar, not like an active tyrant. Like it was very, I don't know, it's very, oh, it sure is telling. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think a movie that only like, increases in stature for me by the way is uh children of men yes which i i think is this rare movie that is resonant at the time because it is identifying like clear trends that were already at work right yeah. like increasing nativism uh you know the growth of the security state all all this stuff so it's relevant it was relevant at the time it felt unsettling but also what it was saying about where the future how the future would be taken from you mm-hmm. um it's it's a weird thing where the movie just feel, it, it has felt resonant at every stage of its life. You know, when it was when it was a new movie, it felt resonant with the with the current moment. Uh, and now years later, it feels like oh yeah, this was the message in the bottle uh, that the you know that uh, you know Fonzo Corone sort of left for the future. Yeah, God, that's a really anyway. good example. Yeah. <laughs> uh, our next email. Uh, comes from uh, Pete from Maryland. Dear Robin Danielle, your recent episode about good old games inspired me to share my weird personality and preferences. I'm a very <laughs> nostalgic person. Mech Warrior 2 Mercenaries is still the best game ever made. GoldenEye N64 is still incredibly successful as a sort of James Bond envisioned by John Woo thing. And Half-Life 1 is the best in the series purely for the encounters with those extremely deadly marines. However, I'm one of the few people I know able to experience acute retrograde nostalgia. That is, deep feelings for games and media that are very outdated, but that I only experienced much later. Hmm. Uh, I can assume this came from my time spent with NES and SNES emulation around my whole life, almost my whole life, uh, from 10 years of age to today, and later spending inordinate amounts of time on abandonware sites. To give you an idea of the extent of the rosiness of the color of my glasses, <laughs> I played the original XCOM in 2007 at the age of 18. At the same time, I was watching Band of Brothers, XCOM's interface and graphics were no obstacle as I, in my imagination, was executing tactical maneuvers just like Captain Winters. <laughs> in my prolonged affair with Abandonware, I discovered many great games, of course. Around the same time I was playing XCOM, I discovered perhaps my greatest find, the 1991 masterpiece Space Hulk by EA and Games Workshop, which is based on the Warhammer 40k spin-off board game. Uh, the unparalleled atmosphere, tricky enemy AI, and constant danger of lethal gene stealers made it what I believe is one of the most pure, pure small squad tactics games ever made, which also happened to be one of the most effective horror games ever made. <laughs> I still play it. It still thrills me. It doesn't matter that the interface is big, though simple and very functional, and you can only move tile by tile and turn 90 degrees at a time, a la Eye of the Beholder. My point is not to tell tales of my abandonware treasure hunt, but to discuss how I could be so tolerant of old interface design and gameplay to the point of loving games I played for the first time after I should have, quote, known better. That is, having already played great newer games that apparently learned from and improved upon those er older, older ones. Do either of you have any additional experiences that go to this extreme? Am I weird? <laughs> I think that's beautiful, Peter. Or Pete. Signed off as Pete. Uh, like, I think it's great to find old games and still it, it find really wonderful things in them to enjoy. Like, a, a really great piece of media, as long as it's still working I, you know, for games, still functioning. It's just like finding a, an old 
fantastic movie you you missed out on and then finding out that there was a whole movement in cinema about this aesthetic or about this story or around this time or something like that it's like it's like a beautiful hidden treasure and it's one of the one of the delights of living in the modern era for all our stupidity and terrible things is that we have massive treasure troves of, of stuff to look through i definitely had like a couple of those experiences um when i played the nes classic I played a whole bunch of stuff that I had never played before, you know, sort of 30 years later, and that um, I had never played really the the really awesome Chippendales game that everybody always talked about when I played the sort of Disney Afternoon collection. And Wait, hold on. Yes? <laughs> you said... You said the, the, the really awesome Chippendales game. I mean, it's Chippendales Rescue Rangers. Okay, yeah, yeah. Chip and Dale are a thing. So is Chippendales. A Chippendales <laughs> game would be I a totally different. I don't know why you didn't play the amazing '90s stripper game Chippendales. <laughs> like, oh my god! I, like somebody, somebody needs to make that. I fucking wish. Actually, yeah, NES Chippendales. Uh, you know, really <laughs> clearly would be the greatest. It's one of the weirder entries on the Disney Afternoon collection. Yeah, they were. You know, they were going for an older After the demographic. Comes night. You know, it was. Yeah. It was just like the young adult demographic, where half of it is grown women. That's what they were trying to go yeah. for. So, you know. <laughs> but yeah, the, I didn't play a lot of the Disney Afternoon Collection games at the time. I played a couple of them, but some of them I hadn't played. And they were really fucking good, and I had a wonderful few hours with them recently. So, I also appreciate these treasure hunts, Pete from Maryland. I mean, I, uh, I I'm kind of envious. I just never had the patience to to wade through all the shit that came with trying to get, uh, you know, old abandonware games to, to games to run. Mm, um, yeah. I I found emulation uh, to be incredibly tedious. Um, like that's why I liked that sort of uh, you know the GOG launcher took a lot of that out of you know out of my hands. I didn't need yeah. to worry about it. Now, I actually know. Like to be fair, it's, it's not that. Like, you know, GOG.com did that. Like, they were just sort of, like, commercializing what those, um, you know, nostalgia gaming uh, communities were already creating. Yeah. Um, so, I, like, I'm sure the barrier to entry got lower. I just never got through the door until something like, you know, Good Old Games came along. Um, but I actually... I don't think this is weird. And I think... Part of it is because a lot of these games are going to get streamlined. And a lot of times what gets cut in the process of streamlining uh, with these ideas is that they lose some of their ambition. Like, you know, as you start streamlining something, you also start getting rid of, you know, some of your wackier, more, you know, original or, or individual ideas. Yeah. And you start boiling an experience down to, to, to what you think is its essence. And that can be really good in some ways, but it also means that you're not going to have uh, games that feel as expansive as some of some of those those older games. Like um, when I played a lot of <laughs> there were EA Classics games, and there were Sierra Classics. Like yeah. there were a lot of games that just did stuff that you're not going to to see again. Um, 
there was a Sierra uh, war game where it was like a hex and counter war game. But when battles broke out that were like these weird tactical battles uh, that, that you play out. And maybe it wasn't good, but it was different and it was, it was unusual. And nobody would make a game like that uh, today. Uh, Privateer, the original Privateer, didn't even tell you there was a story. Like literally <laughs> you just played the game until you stumbled upon a story. Like that's like it's it's crazy for me to think about this. I remember like my cousin and I were both playing through the game around the same time we were both loving it. And I remember when I sort of stumbled on the main quest line, I told him like, "Hey man, like have you been to a uh, new Detroit?" And he was like, "No, I'm like uh, I'm you know, I'm getting like I'm just sort of trading uh, you know, ore and shit around different parts of the the galaxy." And I'm like no, like, go to the bar on New Detroit. There's, like, a guy with, like, an artifact. And now the police are after me? And it was... The, it's it's so weird. Like, the game doesn't... The game doesn't hint that there's even a story in it. You just sort of find it. And then, and then there's a quest line. Um, <laughs> nobody's going to make a game like that. Wow. Uh, nobody's going to let you sort of flail around like that. But the effect you get from a game that operates that way is that that flailing that carving your your life out in this universe and getting your getting your small uh, your, your small your, your small shipping and the bounty hunting <laughs> operation up and running uh, is that when the story does arrive it does feel like this weird adventure you've stumbled into the middle of uh you know while you're trying to run your own business wow i mean that is god that's so charming this <laughs> is just a weird and charming factor and that's i think that's part of it uh, i don't know there's there's something about charm that you can't fake right and there's something about tripping on something that that kind of can't be faked i'm just pondering i'm while i'm pondering trippings and faking things uh rob i want to hear about your weekend project are you watching or reading oh or or okay. playing something that's real special Oh, it was real specials. Oh, that's a, we're stretching that. All right. Um, I would not say that my weekend project is, <laughs> is real special. Uh, I just finished watching Riverdale. Oh, yeah. Okay. And okay. I remain really deeply ambivalent about my choice to watch <laughs> Riverdale. Um, it is such a silly show. Yeah. It is so deeply silly. It is such a teen show. And yet there is a bizarre quality to it that is just, I find just kind of irresistible. Um, <laughs> yeah. So Riverdale, you know, I think I talked about it when it premiered. It had, like, it's, it's what if, what if Riverdale was secretly like, what if Riverdale and the Archie comics were like secretly uh, small town noir? Yeah. And... I was I found that kind of irresistible, but at first it just felt like a really dumb, dumb version of Small Town Noir, <laughs> uh, with the recognizable characters of, of sort of the the Archie verse. But it just kept getting more gothic, yeah, to the point where I started to just go with it. Like, <laughs> like it is a <laughs> let, let me give you an idea of how dumb this show is. So there's a bad part of town, the south side. <laughs> yeah. And there's a there's a motorcycle gang on the south side called the South Side Snakes. Oh, that's right. I 
I saw the first few episodes, so I'm 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 coming yeah. back. I'm coming back now. It's coming back. All right. And there is still not really much evidence that the South Side Snakes get up to anything more than like <laughs> dealing weed to kids <laughs> and like hanging out in a bar <laughs> and occasionally being too rowdy at the movie theater. Oh my god! But everyone in this universe is like. Ooh, that person with the Southside snakes, that's just no good. Like, you better be careful, Betty Cooper. Because, uh, like, you know, Jughead's dad is a Southside snake, and you know those people are just no good. And, like, the mayor is, like, caught up in, like, political corruption. But her daughter is also the head of Josie and the Pussycats. <laughs> that's right. And the mayor also knows every major character by name. And so, like, there's, like, small town corruption and, like, wheeling and dealing. But the town feels like there's about, like, 40 people who live in it, and they all know each other. Right. And yet, and yet by the end, it is so, it is so committed to its own, like, fever pitch emotional intensity that after, like, a certain point, I just sort of put my arms up and enjoyed the ride. <laughs> and I feel like in the end, I was kind of rewarded for that experience. Because, one, it remains, from start to finish, a gorgeously shot show. Like, it's it beautiful. Is... Yeah. Yeah. And, and the color, the, the sort of use of oh, color or whatever they do to the it's film. It's so saturated. It is so weirdly beautiful and kind of sickly sweet. Yes. In a way. Yes. And I, I, that... Always impressed me for sure. It, it remind it reminds me of um, maybe this is why I'm 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 sort of starting to gel with this show. It reminds me a lot of Pushing Daisies. Yeah, uh, yeah. Just visually is is just but it, but it, where Pushing Daisies was going in sort of a gorgeous and storybook direction. This exactly like you said, like it's like what if everything is so lush and vibrant that it feels overpowering yeah, and like, like too much candy. Oppressive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it definitely, like, yes, too much candy. It definitely plays on that, Danielle. Yes. When you discover the... <laughs> there's literally... Holy shit. There is a scene where Cheryl Blossom's mom reveals to her... <laughs> it's going to be good. The, the <laughs> sticky, syrupy truth behind our maple syrup empire. Oh, my fucking God. <laughs> No. And by the way, the Blossoms are the most powerful family in town because of a maple syrup empire. Oh my but behind, god! But behind the maple syrup empire, there's a sticky syrupy truth. And yet, and yet, here I am at the end of a season of Riverdale, genuinely bummed. Uh, there is not going to be more Riverdale for a while because. Oh. By the end, it was pulling from so many different... I mean, shit, there's even a Godfather direction it's going in with Jughead <laughs> that I find utterly perplexing and utterly oh, delicious. Oh, my fucking God. I might need to finish it. I did watch a few episodes and I was intrigued. I mean, like... It's so always... the day after it went off yeah. the air, by the way, it's on Netflix. Okay. Like, the okay. entire season's on Netflix. Okay, so, perfect. like, which is crazy. So it's go easy. On. Yeah. <laughs> I, like it, there's always a high bar whenever there's high school anything in a show, but doesn't mean I'm not in it. Like I, I love me some Friday Night Lights, so like I get oh, it. And I get it. Like this is these kids go to high school the way like 
Buffy did, went to high school. Right. Like, by the time season three rolls around. Like, high school is just a set they use for a right. couple, like, conversations. Most of it is just, like, them Nancy drawing their way around uh, around town. Around, shit, there's so around much Around Riverdale. <laughs> like, there's also this weird, like, Betty Cooper is a total Hitchcock blonde. Yeah. Um, like, gorgeous, tragic. Men do terrible terrifying. things to her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, God. like just feels like a pressure cooker. All right. Uh, so yeah, I Riverdale, uh, a very silly show that somehow because of the way it's put together, uh, ends up being weirdly compelling. All right, I might have to finish it. I might have to finish it. I I'm, I have a struggle right now because there's a couple of shows that I I am currently watching and just wrapped that I want to tell you about because I really really liked them. I think there's a lot there. I'll just shout them out. Well, maybe I'll actually talk about them. I think the second season of Master of None is fantastic. There's a show called Chewing Gum that I started watching that is really fucking funny. But Rob, I just feel the need. I I just feel the need to talk to you about Fargo season three. Okay. I bounced off it. Okay. Okay. I, I... God, Are I have such in? mixed feelings. This is not like a, a weekend project endorsement. I guess the other two that I mentioned that I will actually talk about in the future are endorsements. Go watch them if you're listening. Chewing gum is awesome and Master of None is awesome. All right, but, but let's, let's stick into this Fargo thing. How, like, how far in, are you? Are you current? Have you I watched all of I think so. I think episode six, I think, is the okay. most recent one. Yeah. I only I, got through the first two. Okay. I actually only sort of... This is a show that I dipped into because my girlfriend was watching it. As as is so many so many things I don't deliberately watch. She will be watching something. I'll see like a first episode or I'll see half of it. I'll be like, nah, okay. And then like, then I kind of get a little bit, you know, in it for a couple episodes in and like make her give me the backstory. So like I didn't see all of, I think, the second episode. But otherwise I've been, I've been watching it and I'm, I'm current, I think. God. I have even more mixed feelings about this season than last season. And I Oof. ultimately really did not like the second season. If you, you'll remember, we had like a oh, whole... Oh, we, we had an argument. We had yeah. a whole Fargo... Yeah. I think the second Jesus. season's a masterpiece. Although I, 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 am, I remain perplexed by that conversation in the squad car on the way yes. home. Yes. <laughs> I, like, like the second season, I, I really liked Hanzi. I really liked a few of the characters, but oh, ultimately dear. felt sour on it. I'm feeling similarly, but I didn't, I have not bounced as hard this time around. Like I, Carrie Coon is keeping me in it thus far. Um, uh, who? who? The Gloria Burgle. Okay. Uh, it, the, the actress Carrie Coon. She also is like the one person I liked in the first season the, of The Leftovers. Is she the XCOM in season two? Uh, sorry, sorry, not, not season two. In the current season. She's the, the uh, chief or former chief oh okay like the okay cool, yeah, yeah she's like oh, the that's, smart that's cop a good lady subplot. Yeah. yeah 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 um i i love her and i love that she was the only thing that made me finish watching the first season of the leftovers because good lord did i hate that season of that show <laughs> but was glad i stuck with it because season two was pretty fucking cool i have not started season three of the leftovers yet that'll be i'm sure another project uh but she just has like a a a presence to her and an intelligence and a hidden dimension that I find really compelling. So I'll pretty much watch her, I think, in most things. Um, and I really liked her sort of plot with L.A. and going to L.A. And I really liked her whole thing with the sci- her sci-fi author uh, 
stepfather or, or grandfather. I forget what the relation yeah. was, but whoever. That was some interesting stuff. Well, let's, so let's let, let's set the stage a little bit. Okay. Um, so I think the biggest thing going on in season three is that there's there's stunt casting, right? Oh, for um, fucking sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You and McGregor uh, as a, this like small as two town. characters, right? Yeah, yeah, and primarily this like small town asshole weaselly guy who owns it's like a parking lot business or something yeah, he's a, he runs a parking lot empire he's a parking lot tycoon and then he and he also plays the guy's brother right i think so yeah Where, let me look at the on, thing just, yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. Uh, come on wikipedia just give me the damn thing <laughs> You McGregor. Yeah, so he's yeah, so he's Emmett and Ray. Right, right, right. yeah. And yeah, so yeah. The, okay. yeah, so the the parking lot king is the shitty like bourgeois weasel. Yep. And then there's the ne'er do well brother, uh, who feels like he was screwed out of his share of the the empire, and is a parole officer. Yes. And I think what really started to put me off this season, like the, like Fargo has always towed this line. Mm-hmm. But what really started to put me off the season is it just starts to feel like that uh, northern Midwest, uh, northern plains setting and characters is starting to become really grating affect in a way sure. that I'm finding unfucking bearable. And <laughs> I think, and God, this is maybe this is the uh, you know Trump seeping into everything. But uh oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. I just can't handle the way Fargo has so many dumb, clueless fucking people with like pronounced Midwestern accents who are yokels that I just, that beggar belief, even for a a show that is like ostensibly a period piece. It just doesn't, there is a lawyer in an early episode who doesn't know how to Google something. Oh God. And like, I'm sorry, but like the show was set in like 2008 or something. Like, I'm sorry, a 60 year old lawyer is gonna know how to use the fucking internet. If my dad, who who is a very smart man, who is a lawyer from Rhode Island, knew how to Google things in the in the 2000s, you bet your ass, <laughs> this guy would know how to Google yeah. shit. And this is what this is what was kind of driving me nuts. Is like I'm just so tired of like characters being oh a little a little obtuse you know and yeah like, i'm a little bit of a, a sketchy dude but it's kind of funny because i got this you know i got this uh i got this northern i got this northern minnesota accent <laughs> and i'm a total snake but you don't you don't put to, you don't put this affectation together with a person being a piece of shit it makes you think about the nature of america huh and the goodness of our supposed middle class like that shit is worn so fucking thin by this point. Yeah. Like, what I liked about season two is it almost got away from that. Season two was, like, big city, like, fucking criminals rolling into small towns that were populated by, yeah, people with, like, funny little accents. But they, they weren't, weren't dumb for the most they, part. Except for yeah. that one guy who was, oh, yeah. Who, uh, The butcher guy? Oh, he wasn't, uh, he was, he was stolid, I would say. Like, he, like... I, I give that character a pass because I don't think he was dumb. It was just nothing. There just wasn't anything there, I guess. Well, nothing in his life prepared him for what what happened to him. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he had like 
no imagination or ambitions beyond like that main street and then like you come home and fuck it's murder time and, and it's killing shit exactly yes yeah but so season two i think i like i i think all that worked season three it feels like it's really leaning in the most off-putting aspects of like season one and i wasn't seeing the upshot uh but but now you're you're still in and you sort of bounced off season two. So I'm curious, like, what are you, like, beyond, uh, beyond Carrie Coon, like, what's, what's really resonating with you? What, what, what thematically is sort of speaking to you? I mean, I mean, that's the thing. Like, it, it's, it's not <laughs> really resonating. But I think I'm honestly just hanging on because of some of the characters, which is all I've done in this show ever, really. Because uh, I don't, I actually really don't like the sort of central thesis or what i read to be the central thesis of uh of fargo which is sort of like <sighs> maybe not the central thesis but but a lot of sort of the core themes like really hyper competent women who get shat on all day long really weaselly asshole guys who get away with everything or or do to a point and then maybe they get their comeuppance and fine but like i just have no interest in, in them ever. Like, I just think they're shitty people that I don't care about. And, and the other part that I have the hardest time with, um, because there's a definite, uh, I think disconnect between what the uh, creators intend with it and, and how it reads, which is cool criminals who are assholes, but they're cool. And they have cool monologues, uh, being, you know, they're, they're always, I think meant to be critiques of masculinity and critiques of, sort of uh, uh, the American worship of violence or, or some kind of critique, right? I don't think they're meant to be played straight. But they, I can't not see them being sort of worshipped by people I don't like in the same way that, like, Dark Knight Joker is is sort of worshipped by, like... I, I can't not uh, see yeah. an Jeez. asshole in a MAGA hat, like, thinking that Yuri, the violent Russian dude who who can beat the shit out of a woman, like is cool because he has this cool like monologue about how bad things are in Russia and how bad things are in Siberia and like, whatever, I'm going to beat the shit out of her. And I'm wearing Adidas. Like I can't not see shitty real life people thinking that dude is so cool. And like not seeing that it's meant to be a critique of something, right? Like it's the, uh, Cameron Kunzelman on Twitter uh, said something very intelligent to the effect of like, Oh yeah, this is like the Rorschach problem or the, um, you know, whatever, any other of these kind of characters problem where it's like, this is meant to be a critique of, of a bad thing, but people think it's so cool. So they think it's real yep. good. You know, it's like, it's that issue. And ah, it doesn't mean I don't yeah. think creators should do that. Like, of course, like creators can do whatever the fuck they want. They can, they can make whatever they'd like to make. Right. And, and I get that the intent of that creation is supposed to be a critique. I get that. It's like, supposed to be treated with some intelligence and some uh, some reflection but, but i don't know i can't not see the other side of that right uh yeah i mean part of it like shitty people are gonna latch on the icon like you know they're gonna latch on to right, all like right. all the wrong icons for of sure course, of course but i do think it's a problem that it's so difficult to create these compelling figures these compelling moments without the nature of its without its compelling quality being conflated with some kind of desirable virtue. Like, 
it's the apocalypse now problem to an extent, right? Where it's like uh, Colonel Kilgore and yeah. the Ride of the Valkyries helicopter attack is meant to be war as theater, war as absurdity. Like the entire thing is fucked up. It's framed as we're going to go lay waste this village because I want to go surf. And so <laughs> right. I'm just going to abuse my, my authority here to go and like level this town. And while we're there, I'm going to catch some great breakers. Like it's going to be fantastic. Yeah. But what we remember is the helicopters coming in against the sun and the awesome power of, you know, America's mid 20th century destructive arsenal being <laughs> unloaded on a fucking like Vietnamese village. And it's meant to be like, like funny and awful and yeah, awe-inspiring to an extent. But what's remembered is how fucking awesome that helicopter attack is. We recreate that moment again and again and again. The meaning of that scene is completely divorced from the spectacle. Um, I forget who it was. Might have been Noir. Saying that you can't make a a real like anti-war film. Um, I feel like that that that's true of a lot of villains uh, as well. Is it's really tough to make a compelling, exciting villain who then doesn't somehow become. Uh, it, it's almost like the uh, you know the the like I mean, Blake's interpretation of Paradise Lost, right? Where it's like, sure. well, actually, the devil's the hero because he's got <laughs> a he's, he's got cool. all the best speeches. Yeah, 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 and and, and B. Um, you know, he's the one who has the spectacle of like democratic uh, governance and, and virtue. And so there's sort of a radical reading of Paradise Lost. But fundamentally, you're still you're still like reading yourself into a complete piece of shit character. Yeah. Uh, and virtue and goodness is, is tough to make exciting and, and sexy. And I think to Fargo's credit, none of its detective hero, heroes or heroines are really cool. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're kind of dorky and but like very very affected dorkiness. <laughs> yeah. But it is a problem that all its most compelling characters, the people who really like sort of stick with you and haunt you are kind of its monsters. Yeah, they're pieces of shit most of the time. Yeah. Like I can't I can't quote a line that Molly uh speaks in season one, but I could—I bet you I could get a pretty decent amount of um, Billy Bob, uh, Billy Bob's monologues. <laughs> yep. Yep. Correct. Yeah. There's some roads you don't go down. Oh, like holy shit! Who doesn't want to be Billy Bob? Right. Exactly. And like, <laughs> the the, mon- the psychopathic monster. And and that's like, I guess it ties somewhat into the kind of nihilism of Fargo as a as a property. And like that's again fine and cool. Not really my cup of tea. Like. I like nihilism when it's uh, when it's film noir. I'm so excited to see where the sentence is going. <laughs> I like my nihilism, like I like. <laughs> like I like my film noir. Okay, I like yeah. my nihilism, like I like my Sunset Boulevard. I like nihilism when it's sad, when it says the world doesn't have to be this way. It just is this way. You know what I mean? Like I like there to be that that other side to it, that other that ability to kind of look at things sideways and say, this really fucking sucks. But you know what? Maybe if a few things were a little different, maybe if there were a few more fucking Gloria Burgles in this world and a few more Mollies, maybe things wouldn't be as shitty. And at least we can imagine a world that's not as shitty. I don't know. Hey, this is this is a me thing. I don't think 
any season of Fargo has been like poorly made by any means. I think it's no. a beautiful show. I think that writing and acting and production values are incredible. I'm probably going to bounce off every season of it <laughs> uh, for various reasons. I I'm still sticking in. I'm still going to stick this with is... it. The way I stuck with the second season, even though I ultimately really disliked a lot of that show. Uh, I like. I still like. At some point, I'm gonna win the battle of reinterpretation with you. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm gonna like you. I'm gonna make the case to you at some point, and you're gonna be like, "I get it now." Look, you're right. I liked Hansi. I really liked. Oh Hansi. man, this, this, if that show were just Hansi, if you could just make an, uh, uh, you know, a ninety minute cut of just, only Hansi. Look, why is why is Zach McLaren not getting more work? Yeah, like, he's, he's there on Longmire. He's in the background. It's like, no, get that motherfucker front and center. Hell like, he yes. is just insanely compelling to watch. Um, but yeah, I, I think this is the first season too, where I just like I don't give a shit about the the villains struck. You know what I mean? It, yes. like, that's the other thing. I just I don't I'm not invested in anything. I think, oh, this one guy's getting his business taken over by like an honest god criminal. I don't give a shit. Like <laughs> the 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 corrupt parole officer who's chief ambition in life is to get a get some repairs for his old Corvette. Right. And uh, you know, and bang his parolee. I don't give a shit about him either or her. Like yeah. they suck. And I'm having trouble engaging with the uh the web of lies and bullshit they're caught up in. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I I, I hear it. So that's why this is more of a discussion than an actual <laughs> endorsement yeah. whatsoever. Uh yeah, and go watch Master and Nun. That's pretty good. <laughs> and in that, in that beautiful note, hey, maybe there's some, maybe there's some hope in this world. Maybe occasionally, or maybe there's like room. We for live hope. in a post-prey world. We live so in a post-prey world. Is, so yeah. you know, the, the, if there's no hope, maybe there's room for hope. That's going to be the beautiful thought that I think we should end the show on, and head out and enjoy our weekends. So this episode of Idle Weekend. Produced by yours truly and hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about Idle Weekend at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. And we really do appreciate you taking the time to uh, come hang out with us, you know, at least uh, in the ether, listen to our podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please do take a second and rate us on iTunes and please do share it with friends, enemies, you know, people with northern Minnesota accents that you that you like or maybe maybe not. I don't know. Whoever whoever you think might enjoy Idle Weekend, if you could tell them about it, that means the absolute world to us and we really do appreciate it. So for Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo, wishing you the finest of idle weekends.